Not everyone comes to software development and Python through four-year computer science programs at universities. This episode highlights one alternative journey into Python. Over the course of two episodes, you will meet people who started in other industries and specializations and now make Python part of their daily experience. Some of them have used programming to power up their specialization. Others decided they'd rather just be doing programming full-time and made that switch over. This episode is part one of a two-part series. Our guests this time are Derek Chambers, Jim Taysom, Arash Shoheli, and Rob Ward. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 173, recorded July 25th, 2018. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy. Keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. This episode is brought to you by Linode and Brilliant.org. Check out what they're offering during their segments. It really helps support the show. Derek, Jim, Arash, and Rob, Welcome all of you to Talk Python. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you. You're welcome. It's great to have you all here. I'm really excited about this uh, short series of shows that I'm doing on people getting into programming in Python from other disciplines like chemical engineering or accounting, things like that. So I, I guess we'll we'll get started by kind of setting the stage and you know talking about where you're coming from because you're not really full-time developers, you're doing other stuff and using development as kind of a superpower. So I guess the first thing I wanna ask you guys is what is your industry? What is your specialization? You know, what do you study? What are you doing day to day? And I guess we'll start with Derek. Great, well, I'm a mining engineer who studies earthquakes and works for the Centers for Disease Control. So I usually get a lot of blank stares when I introduce myself that way. Um, <laughs> essentially, the Centers for Disease Control has a group that does occupational safety and health research, and I work within that group studying the mining industry. That sounds really interesting. What kind of background do you have to, to work in this? Did you go and get like a bachelor's degree in mining and geology? Yeah, so I have a bachelor's degree in mining engineering, and then I did my master's work in geophysics. Very awesome. Jim, how about yourself? I work for uh, Radiant Solutions. We're federal contractors in the D.C. area. My background is as a geographer. I got my bachelor's degree in geography with a focus on geographic information systems. And more recently, I've been transitioning into a full-time developer role because of picking up Python and all the things that's led me to. Yeah, that, that's pretty awesome. You know, I had a similar path. I studied something else and I just did more and more programming until I'm just like, why am I doing that other stuff? <laughs> yep. But are you still doing programming around GIS? I know Python and GIS are like a really good fit. And then, you know, ArcGIS and uh, the Esri folks do a lot with Python, for example. Yeah, so I'm still very involved in the GIS community. The project that I'm on is very GIS-centric, although I'm doing more of like the web backend for the project right now. Okay, cool. Arash, how about you? Yeah, I'm working for uh, Market Smart, and we do like software and services uh, for nonprofit organizations exclusively. Mm-hmm. And I was originally trained as a, a organic chemist, but uh, I've pretty much transitioned over now. So I'm not really involved in, in doing really chemistry anymore. Maybe in the future, I'll maybe get back to a cross-section of doing something with software and chemistry, but I'm pretty much doing doing software engineering now full-time and not really as much doing it, not really doing any chemistry anymore, so. That's pretty interesting. How do you feel that studying, like, a science, like a, a hard science background 
sort of helped you become a programmer or did it have not help at all? I think it helped in what I realized is the skill that I had as a scientist is basically the scientific method and the problem solving approach is actually exactly the same in software engineering. When I came over, I realized that the approach to solving problems, you know, forming a hypothesis, researching what's out there, testing something, feedback loop, that's literally what I did in as organic chemist every day. And so the same process is really applied to software engineering. It's really the tool set that's changed. Obviously, uh, guy chemistry, you're in the lab messing with chemicals, uh, trying to make stuff. Uh, and in software engineering, you know, you have a computer and you're trying to build software. But the approach to how you're going about solving a problem was actually the same. And it actually really, I think, kind of helped me be able to make that transition. Yeah, I had, a, like I said, a similar background. And I feel like... You know, people will joke like, Michael, you almost got your PhD in math, but does that seem like a waste, right? And I don't think it was. I think like those types of thought processes are really, really similar. And like you say, the problem solving and stuff like that. So I think it prepares exactly. you pretty well. Yeah. So Rob, how about yourself? Yeah. So I uh, got my bachelor's in accounting and had some accounting jobs early in my career. And um, I've always been technically savvy and you know, kind of along the way, I uh, got exposed to SQL and that kind of led to, hey, this is kind of cool and more interesting than accounting. And then from there, decided I wanted to learn Python. And I will say, like the, some of the others, I am not doing accounting anymore. I'm a data analyst. Uh, so working my way towards data science and working on a master's in analytics. So That's cool. So you're still going to school for your master's yeah, degree yeah. right now? How far along are you? Right, right. I'm about a year and a half in, and I got a year left. So I'm just taking one class at a time. Just keep it simple. Yeah, no reason to, to go full-time. Right, yeah, kids and all that. But um, but yeah, from an accounting standpoint, I did actually use Python uh, when I was still doing accounting work a few years ago, which you know we can get into more a little later. Yeah, sounds good. So I guess maybe go back in, in reverse order uh, with you, Rob. If you're in accounting, you know, Excel is programmable, right? People do ridiculous yep. stuff. I think I've seen a flight simulator created in Excel. Is that, have you uh, seen this? I have not seen that. There's some pretty intense stuff done in Excel. So, yes. uh, you know, that's probably like the natural place to do like automation and stuff like that. So why do you learn Python and programming? I had years ago, I had, I had tried to learn C <laughs> and that failed miserably. <laughs> like, well, programming's hard, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was like, what is this stuff? And so then I kind of decided again, you know, data science was starting to become a thing. And I knew I wanted more of a business intelligence or data analyst type of role. I was doing accounting and um, not the name drop, but my brother works for GitHub. So he's like, you should learn Python. I'm like, OK, I'll learn Python. So, um, you know, I think it was about it was five years ago. And uh, I just started on I think it was that learn Python the hard way, which I know can be controversial to some people, but uh, it was a good starter. And then also took some Coursera courses. They have a lot of Python uh, courses. Got through about half of it until I got to um, object-oriented programming and <laughs> was a little dumbfounded <laughs> at the time. And uh, I was able to, to see the value and see that there were things that could be applied to things I was doing every day in my accounting work, which I don't know if you want to get into that right now or a little later. Yeah, let's get into it maybe a little bit later, but I think there, there's definitely yeah. some really cool like automation of uh, of sort of Excel and processing of those files. Yes. And there's lots of cool stuff in there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we'll dig into that. So Arash, why did you get into programming in Python? 
you were in the lab. Your hands are already got like gloves on. It's hard to type. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. I, I, I mean, honestly, I, I went down a path where I was trying to do in chemistry, but I got in pharmaceuticals and, and, and I started not liking the big companies in the pharmaceuticals. I, I thought about uh, academics and it, it, it was not looking good as uh, very few jobs. Funding is kind of bad. Uh, and I'd always interested in technology and I was doing some web development, not really much programming, but I, I was doing that stuff. I was getting more and more. And then eventually I kind of just, uh, I don't know, I, I've always been someone that, that kind of takes chances. And so I kind of just was like, well, let me try to see if I can, you know, work my way into, into this field. And I kind of, and I got there and I kind of pulled myself up uh, and learned and, and made it through. So it, it's really kind of been the industry of, of chemistry, at least for me, didn't really kind of, kind of failed me, <laughs> at least for me. Yeah. But actually the Excel thing you were talking about, I will say something. We actually had an entire application here we built Marcus Smart out of this uh, Excel we had this uh, this guy who was working for one of these nonprofits who had this crazy Excel file that he uh, a nonprofit would send him his data and he would just uh, had this basically these macros he had written and it would take like some of it would take like a data run and he finally came to us and we, we talked to him he's like you know this is this is awesome people are sending me this stuff they love this thing but it takes me so long to run and like can you put make the software edit? we're like yes <laughs> that's <laughs> what it should be for so we actually built an entire application uh, it's called the fundraising report card.com that is out of came born out of literally of excel files that's awesome yeah i think there's so much programming happens in excel honestly so one thing I wanted to ask you coming from on that path, do you feel, I, I know a lot of people talk about imposter syndrome, not coming with a computer science degree. Was that a problem for you or were you okay with, no, do no, you feel I, like, I, do I belong in this programming world? Like how do I sort of prove that I, I've earned my jobs here? Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's real. I mean, I think people feel it. I, I've definitely felt it. I think the first year was really tough because there was a lot of nomenclature, a lot of words I just didn't understand. And literally there was a moment I... I even though it was an accumulation, I literally remember a moment after a year where one day it just kind of like clicked and I was like, okay, I understand. Like, I don't understand. I don't know everything, but now I can understand. I can read an article. I can go through something and comprehend and work my way through it where before, you know, I would get lost sometimes just completely not understand concepts. Um, so I think it's real. You got to you know, read, read, read. I read constantly and you got to just always train yourself and always be training. So to keep, and I think at some point you get over that to a level where you're like, okay, I think I got, you know, through it. So yeah, I think it's, I mean, you got, and you got to work through it. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I feel like once you get to the point where you've learned enough new things repeatedly, you're like, there's a lot of stuff I don't know, but if I need to know it, I can learn it really quickly. And once you kind of get that skill and experience, I think the imposter syndrome really fades pretty quickly. But yeah, if you don't like continuously learning, this is not the industry that's going to work out so well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think learning is, is a, and things change so much in software engineering, I mean, almost on a weekly basis that you, you better be ready to be learning all the new stuff uh, and at least keep up to date with it. Yeah, for sure. Jim, I think probably your introduction may be the simplest. If you're in GIS, you almost have to learn Python to do some of that stuff, right? But what what was the motivation for you? So for me, the first couple of years of doing GIS, I didn't really need to use Python at all. I ended up in some mandatory training that I didn't need. And so I was interesting hours and hours and hours every day, just completely bored out of my mind. So I started going through all the ArcGIS documentation on how to use ArcPy and started teaching myself Python enough that within my realm, I was willing to put it on my resume. And then 
there was another position at work that needed someone who knew Python because they had this old VBA application that was written for ArcGIS that they needed to replace because Esri was it's VB6. getting... <laughs> I don't even remember or VBA what it or was. it was, yeah. <laughs> they needed someone to, that could take what they had and recreate it in Python because Esri had been telegraphing for a while that they were going to be dropping VB support. And so it was more than I was ready for, but they couldn't find anyone else. And so I just told my boss, I was like, I can do the project. You just have to give me at least a little bit of time every week so I can like do some like at home Python training and figure this out. And I did it and loved it and started doing more of it. Oh, that's really cool. It's cool how you're able to sort of laterally move in your company because of it too. Mm-hmm. It's not great to be stuck in mandatory training that's super boring, but you know, at least you made a really good use of it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I use my time well. <laughs> awesome. Derek, how about you? What was the motivation for getting into programming? Yeah, I first got into programming when I started graduate school, and I had an advisor that was really hands-off. And so his charge was kind of just go figure out something new and novel and useful and do it. (laughs) So I ended up changing my research topic, I think, three or four times. But I was finding that it was very hard to use some of the existing tools that I'd known to, to build sort of a larger system that would do something interesting. And so I run across this uh, Python package called OBSPY, which implements a lot of uh, format parsers and data classes for handling seismology data. And so once I found that, I got into Python, and I was able to build this uh, bigger system that actually looked at implementing a newer uh, method for detecting very small seismic events. Like micro-earthquake type things? Yeah, exactly. The typical seismicity associated with mining is pretty small, so you have to have some clever methods for detecting it in most cases. Mm-hmm. Nice. And you said that you're now a contributor to that project, right? That's right. Yeah. I'm a maintainer for OBSPY. I really enjoy when I can find some spare time, you know, making improvements or suggesting uh, different things we can do in the future. Yeah. That's awesome. So what are my feelings about sort of people becoming programmers and having these skills is it's great to just have like a computer science degree. You can solve problems and, and program and stuff, but like the real value of, of many more people having programming skills and Python skills is like it's kind of a superpower for the thing that you do do. So I wanted to ask you all sort of how you saw that in your industry. I know not all of you are still doing uh, that day to day, but you know it sounds like all of you sort of got started in programming while you were still in that industry. So um, Rob, what do you think about this sort of power up idea? No, yes, I, I can attest to that uh, firsthand because in my last job that was truly an accounting job, I was I was the accounting manager for just a small company um, in my hometown, and um, we had it, they were a property manager and had over 500 homes or you know mortgages that that I had to manage. So every month I was sending out these mortgage payments, and I have to put them in the in our accounting package, our software, right? So I, I found out there was an easy way to, um, or there was a way to import the data, but there was no easy way to create that in, in Excel. At least not that I could find. I didn't want to manually type these out. So I, uh, my first project in Python, you could say, was uh, I figured out how to do all the loan and amortization payments and the principal and interest and make them basically batch load this entire file for, for the month. And that sped up my workflow, you know, made made paying the bills so much easier from a, a daily on a daily basis. <laughs> That's great. And there's so many examples, I, I'm sure, that are out there uh, like that. Like even in my stuff, 
you know, obviously I have to write code to run websites and things. And I'd done other types of programming for many years, but like one example was I have all of these, uh, these videos for the courses and I had to import them <laughs> when I load a new course and it doesn't sound like a big deal, but you've got to set the time and like the duration. All, there's just tons of stuff. And I was even thinking of hiring somebody to like do that. And I'm like, wait a minute, I wonder if I just write a program. And now it's like a, you know, a five second <laughs> command line type it and boom, it's done. It's, it's just right. so nice when you have those realizations, like, why am I doing this by hand? There's something, surely this, this yep. can be automated, right? That was the impetus for me. You know, everything was doing, doing it by hand. And I, and I had played around with, you know, uh, I, maybe people have heard of auto hockey. You know, I had done made macros with auto hockey before years ago in Windows. And, and so it's kind of a similar idea, like just automating simple tasks that you have to do anyway. But might as well just speed it up. Yeah, I, I can see somebody actually deciding, I'm going to go do that from the coffee shop and then taking every other Friday off as their code runs and, you know. Does the work they did for half a day. All right. So, uh, right. Jim, how about you with this, uh, this power-up idea? So, it was actually really, really amazing some of the things that I was able to do, like, really early on in learning Python. So, a lot of the GIS workflows are really intensive, and you're doing a lot of steps over and over. There's been a couple of things where I've done where you might be taking and doing, like, four things, but you do them a thousand times in a row. And without something like Python, that's almost impossible to do. And my favorite example is there was a coworker who was working on trying to do some correlations between some various data sets and his manual workflow that he was using would take him between three and four weeks. So he was spending 120 to 160 hours, like just manually just going through the data. Like not only is that inefficient, but that's got to be terribly ungratifying type of work. Oh, just terrible. Cause it was just like, click, click click, wait five minutes, click, 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 wait five minutes for weeks on end. And when I heard about that, I was like, all right, let fully explain what you're trying to accomplish and I'll work something out. And a week later, I had a uh, just a, a little script written in Python that did his entire workflow. But instead of being able to like correlate like like the top three correlations, I was able to correlate all of the data sets and the entire script would run in eight minutes. So I replaced a month's worth of work with an eight minute job and it only took me a week to do it. That's incredible. What was the reaction of this guy? He was just completely blown away because like he went from being able to do like this type of analysis 12 times a year to being able to do it 12 times before lunch. Yeah, that's amazing. I've worked at, at uh, companies before where there are a lot of like real scientists doing scientific work. And it was this kind of thing. It was like really manual involving lots of different sort of software pieces like Excel or other MATLAB or stuff glued together. And there's just, they did the tedious little steps thinking like, this is how you do it. And this, it just, you have to do it this way. And me and a couple other folks, we sort of systematically started automating like the worst of these things like you're describing here. And every time something amazing like that came out, it was like, oh, you're going to automate us out of a job. <laughs> It was like, oh, yeah. this was my job and now I don't do it anymore. What am I going to do? But of course, the next week they were doing higher level stuff or doing it more in more depth or whatever. And those people never got automated out of a job as far as I could tell. There's always more problems that can be solved once you free up some time. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Linode. 
Are you looking for bulletproof hosting that's fast, simple, and incredibly affordable? Look past that bookstore and check out Linode at talkpython.fm slash Linode. That's L-I-N-O-D-E. Plans start at just $5 a month for a dedicated server with a gig of RAM. They have 10 data centers across the globe, so no matter where you are, there's a data center near you. Whether you want to run your Python web app, host a private Git server or file server, you'll get native SSDs on all the machines, a newly upgraded 200 gigabit network, 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guarantee. Do you need a little help with your infrastructure? They even offer professional services to help you get started with architecture, migrations, and more. Get a dedicated server for free for the next four months. Just visit talkpython.fm slash Linode. Derek, power up idea? Yeah, I think there's kind of three components to this. The first one is scale. You can usually do process a lot bigger data sets with Python or some other programming language than you would normally with Excel or some other tools that you might be using. The other one is maintainability. You know, you can put Python scripts into proper version control like Git, see what changes and when it changes, unlike Excel where you might have people that are working on a common workbook and change different things and you don't know who changed what. And then also really increasing the level of automation. Just like Jim had mentioned, I've had a few experiences, nothing quite as dramatic, but you know, coworkers have come to me with a really manual problem process and ask for help automating it and we've been able to do that in python and save a lot of time that's cool are you are you known as like the guy that you can come with manual stuff and <laughs> you can fix it i'm trying not to let that reputation spread but uh yeah a little bit well this podcast won't help i'm sure <laughs> arash how about you an example we have is uh and i think yeah it's very important to kind of get everybody to understand that that a little bit of programming knowledge can really uh make you very powerful we have account managers who similar story we're doing some manual stuff that uh, some campaign data that wasn't available via an API so that we're literally going to every account and like putting copy and pasting it to an Excel. And of course, that made it tedious. So eventually they came to us and I kind of with a with somebody helped them write a web scraper uh, with Selenium to just basically scrape that data. And so something that took her basically eight hours or a whole day or, you know, just bog her down. We were able to do it like basically the same thing in five minutes which, uh, you know, they were very thankful for. And she's actually somebody who is starting to learn Python. And I think that's the thing, like for people to get into using programming to make themselves super powerful, they do need somebody or somebody to really kind of show them uh, the benefits of it and kind of get them in the direction. Because I think it's, that's not the first thing they're going to think about because uh, it's not natural for them. And also they don't really know how to get into it. So I think it really to kind of make that happen, you kind of do need somebody to kind of show them the way. And then hopefully that gets them excited enough and realizes the benefits that they can start to go down that path and realize, yeah, I could be an account manager, I could be a product manager, I could be kind of anything. But with a little bit of programming, I could be a really powerful account manager or powerful product manager or whatever field you're in. I think that's a really great point about sort of seeing the light and realizing that it's not all that complicated. Because to me, before I got into software development, programming computers seemed really like a, a deep, complicated thing that took years and years and years of, of studying. And you had to be the right type of person to have that kind of thinking and that just that knowledge, right? And while there is some type of, like, some types of software that probably is that way, like writing a kernel for a new OS that you invented probably is like that. But a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, and what most people need 
is actually not that that bad, but you kind of have to see the light, right? You're like, wait, you did that in 15 minutes. And now my horrible job I did for eight hours once a week is now five minutes in automatic. Like maybe I could do that. Exactly. And I think it's also, and I try to tell everybody in our company that it's like, you know, you don't need, uh, just because you do a little bit of programming or you're going to use some tool, it doesn't mean you're a programmer or it doesn't mean you're going to be an engineer. That's not the point of it. It's just a tool set that's going to help you do whatever is your job better. So you don't need to think of that, that I have to be a programmer or I have to be an software engineer to do it. It's just a tool set that you can learn just like any other tool set. Yeah, maybe you are into psychology and you don't want to be a programmer. You want to be a psychologist. Well, I'm sure there's awesome stuff you could automate and discover and make you a better psychologist, right? You don't have to give that up. Exactly. All right, so let me uh, ask Derek and Jim this one because you guys are still doing the sort of what you studied day to day. How has learning programming changed what you do day to day? Like, has it changed your job or has it not really? So I guess I'll start. I would say that it's completely changed almost everything that I do because ArcGIS, it's very good at what it is, but it's also very expensive. And so a lot of places don't necessarily want to use it. And it's also quite slow. And so there's a lot of things I can do in Python that are a lot faster. But one of the things that you end up missing is that like that interface that ArcGIS provides. And so now I'm doing a whole lot of like web programming and backend development to like like build up a core system, but then you still need something that like can be provided to a UI so that when my teammate makes a, a really beautiful UI, it can consume everything that we've processed on the back end. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think that's really great. Derek? Yeah, so a lot of people that study seismology are already kind of halfway programmers. You can't really do much in seismology without having some programming knowledge. But a lot of tools that were common there were things like Fortran and scripting things together, stitching them together with Bash, that sort of thing. So I think Python has given me uh, maybe an advantage over a lot of those old workflows and that I can prototype things faster, maybe try out a new research idea much faster than, than I would have if I wasn't using Python. Yeah, there's probably a lot of MATLAB and those types of things going on as well there. Right, yeah. Yeah. So what type of um, packages and, and tool sets do you guys use? Is it like Anaconda? Is it Django? Derek, keep going with you first, I guess. Yeah, I, I mostly use Anaconda. That's been a really a great system for us just to avoid a lot of the compilation, especially when we have to work on Windows systems. Yeah, a lot of the scientific tools can be a pain to install, so getting them pre-compiled oh, yeah, very and just much download. So. Yeah. VC VAR all bad or whatever that is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've seen that, that a few more. times. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Jim, how about you? So at first, when I was just learning, really the only thing I had available was the Python installation that came with ArcGIS. So I had the, the core library and ArcPy and nothing else for probably the first like two years of using Python. And then when I got Anaconda, it was fantastic because I had all these great li extra libraries that I could use. And now at this point, it's a whole lot of web programming. So like right now, I'm working with SANIC. We're using Postgres and the Postgres extension. So because of that, we're using async PG to connect to Postgres. We're using Docker and Kafka and all these other things. So I'm using PyKafka to communicate with Kafka. And so it's gotten to be very, very diverse compared to where I started with Windows and ArcGIS. That is a serious... Uh change there. That's amazing. How do you like uh, SANIC? So for the most part, I really do like SANIC. It's very responsive. 
every once in a while when I get like down into a rabbit hole and there's just like not nearly as like many things on Stack Overflow of like, how do I fix this problem? And I'm still wrapping my head around the whole async thing. So it's, it's definitely different, but I do enjoy it. It's fast. That's cool. Yeah, I've definitely wanted to do more Sanic, but I actually have a little, uh, a little bit of that feeling like, well, not necessarily that there'll be not enough answers on Stack Overflow, but there's also all the other support stuff. Like, here's an example of how you do this, or here's a, a library you plug in that like fills this gap mm-hmm. and things like that. So, But it definitely looks like a cool framework. There's definitely some of that missing. And so there's been times where it's like, I really wish I had just started this project using Flask instead of Sanic, but... <laughs> But now, now you get these flat. We had very good reasons for choosing Sanic at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Arash, how about you? Yeah, as far as tools said, I mean, we're mainly doing some of the uh, typical Python web stuff. So we use Flask uh, front end. We use Angular. We recently got it into like Airflow, which I don't know if everyone's familiar, but it's from uh, Airbnb. Yeah, it's like a data pipeline thing, right? Yeah, it's data pipeline. So we originally doing a lot of our data pipeline, still is, was with Pentaho. And I really hate that software. <laughs> it's good at some stuff, but it's really annoying. I, I hate using it. And so I started looking at Airflow. And, and that's really nice because it's Python. We know Python. It's code. And it's, it's just a lot easier to kind of get it up and running. That also does suffer a little bit right now still from, I mean, it has decent documentation, but there's still a lot of stuff there that uh, it's kind of hard to find when you run into some issues. So, but it's really growing. And I think Google just brought out a product, which the underlying platform of it is using Airflow. So I think that, you know, Airflow is probably here to stay and it's going to probably grow. So, and then we're also using uh, Falcon framework for like an api that we've set up so yeah falcon I, i've had those guys on the show a while ago it's like yes, a really yeah, low yeah. level low latency api framework right yeah i mean i originally i used to set it up maybe like two years ago when maybe i still wasn't a little bit understanding of, of, of all the frameworks at the time but i'm i'm kind of glad i did actually because it was, it was strictly for an api for our company and it, it is really fast and it, it's held up uh and uh Although I probably would have used one of the, if I had to do it again, I'd probably use one of the other frameworks that's built on top of Flag, uh, Falcon, like, is it Hugs? Or yeah, Hugs, yeah, it's one of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I used, we used one of those, but still, it's, it's, it's a really uh, good, fast framework for what we wanted. Okay, yeah, that sounds really interesting. I haven't really talked about Airflow on the show. Um, maybe give people a quick example of, like, what problem or what job you're accomplishing with Airflow, like, Describe like why you're using it. Yeah, so I mean, basically, uh, it it's kind of in the realm. It's not technically an ETL, which is extract transform layer. So in, in a lot of companies, office software engineering, you get data, but a lot of times you need to get data from one place and kind of transform it and do some things to it and then bring it over to another place, usually to another database. And so that's where like an ETL comes in. And so those are usually workflows that you want to set up that maybe go through many steps. Uh, and there are different like sort of softwares out there to accomplish this. And uh, Airflow is technically just like a scheduler of these flows, but it's got a nice UI to it. You can kind of put tasks, uh, uh, you know, one after other. It, it's, it, go, it uses directed acyclic graphs. Um, so you can, and then the thing is it's code. So because the, you write Python code for those tasks, you bring in a lot of programmability where a lot of the other ETL software if you ever use it, they're, they're not like that. They kind of come with prepackaged sort of modules, and you kind of just have to use those prepackaged modules. And right. then it gets transported. Like like Pentaho is, is really a Java XML, so it's, it's taking XML code and eventually gets, uh, <laughs> you know, is run by Java. So it's not, you know. That sounds fun. Not, 
yeah it's it's yeah i hate it <laughs> uh, i love airflow so much better although there, you know there are differences and there are some things that that sort of like pentaho is better than an airflow i mean right now just to give a use case which also brings in async is that w one thing we're using airflow mainly for right now is that we're we're uh, some of our stuff is done in some other software so, uh, some email platforms and so we need a lot of their data through their api so instead of at real time getting that data api we're like making tasks where we where we hit those APIs, get all that data, transform it the way we want, and then and then put it in our database. So then when we run our application, we don't need to rely on the API anymore. We just pull it from the database. And we actually ended up using async IO and IO HTTP to to speed up those tasks, which came really in handy and was um, a great example of using async at that point because we make we're making thousands of API requests. And so instead of like a task original we were running was taking two and a half hours, we got it down to like 10 or 15 minutes. That's really awesome. Yeah, some of that AIO HTTP stuff, uh, the client side stuff is really powerful. Yeah, so we're basically pulling all this stuff, prefetching all this stuff from APIs from our different uh, softwares that we work with and then uh, transforming it into the forms that we need and dumping it in our database so then that way we don't have to rely on them when we actually run our application. That sounds like a real cool use of Airflow. Nice. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Brilliant.org. Many of you have come to software development and data science through paths that did not include a full-on computer science or mathematics degree. Yet, in our technical field, you may find you need to learn exactly these topics. You could go back to university. But then again, this is the 21st century and we do have the internet. Why not take some engaging online courses to quickly get just the skills that you need? That's where Brilliant.org comes in. They believe that effective learning is active. So master the concepts you need by solving fun, challenging problems yourself. Get started today. Just visit talkpython.fm slash brilliant and sign up for free. And don't wait either. If you decide to upgrade to a paid account for guided courses and more practice exercises, the first 200 people that sign up from TalkPython will get an extra 20% off an annual premium subscription. That's talkpython.fm slash brilliant. Rob, how about you? Tool set? Sounds like I need to learn Airflow. But uh, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I prim primarily use uh, Anaconda and all the associated or many of the associated uh, packages that come with it. So Pandas I'm using every day. And uh, I love Jupyter Notebooks or Jupyter Lab now. I uh, have transitioned over to that. That's mainly what I'm using at work. And then on a personal level, I, you know, still, of course, love requests and beautiful soup. But that's, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's personal projects. <laughs> the whole web is your API. It's sweet. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so you switched from Jupyter to Jupyter Lab. Why was that? That's kind of where Jupyter's headed from everything I've read. They're going to eventually, I think they're going to sunset. Uh, Jupyter Notebooks, and it's going to move exclusively to Jupyter Lab. I don't know the timeline. It's probably a few years off still, but um, they had released the beta, I believe it was December or January. I can't remember for sure, but uh, I, I jumped on board right away and, and it, it works. I haven't had any trouble. There's a few features that are missing from Jupyter Lab still compared to Jupyter Notebooks. But the nice thing is if you have the latest version of Jupyter installed, you can run, as long as the Jupyter server is running, you can run both. It doesn't, it doesn't care. It's just a UI front to the server. Yeah, it's just a different UI than the Jupyter Notebooks. I, I mean, it, it'll look familiar, but then there's like the file browsers right, is built in right there, and so is the command palette. So it's all, it's just all built in right there. And then you can, the nicest thing about it is you can have 
you know, multiple tabs so you can compare notebooks side by side. You can actually copy cells or drag cells from one notebook to the other. Oh, wow. So, you know, I'm, yeah. So anytime I, which is really nice for reproducibility because, you know, sometimes I might get a request at work like, hey, can you, you know, run this report, but change this. I actually had that happen this morning where it's basically just, you know, I had to drop in like a lot of the same code, but then make a few small changes. So you just literally, I just copy or three or four of the of the cells and drag them to the to the new notebook and run it again. It's cool. It's a little bit it's like really uh, nice. like an IDE version of Jupiter, right? Yeah, that's actually a really good description for it. Yeah, yeah. We started using that a little bit ourselves. We were we were also using pandas and Jupyter, but we started using Jupyter Lab. And actually, talk about empowering. Uh, this is another example. We had a, uh, one of our colleagues who's who's working on this app, and he would get requests of these files that they would send him that are like over a million. And so Excel actually has real trouble when you get to really large files and he had to segment them. Yep. So it would crash constantly. So he kept sending it to me and be like, hey, can you take care of this? So finally I was like, you know what? I'm going to teach you Jupiter. It's not that hard. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. I did teach him. And once every week he comes to me and says, Arash, thank you so much for teaching me this. Now I can just take care of this stuff and, and I feel more empowered. So that's another example of, of that empowerment. And then and Jupiter Lab Notebook whichever one you use, like really makes that really easy, actually. I wonder if Jupiter for those types of folks almost is like a Trojan horse for teaching them programming. Like, look, you're not a programmer. You're not writing source code. You've got this thing and it does like computation and you type in it. You know what I mean? Like, of course, it's still Python and stuff. But like, I wonder if it's perceived differently by people who who come at it from that perspective fresh. Yeah, I think it could because the interface is not, you know, because I guess there's some web versions of it. Or if you run it locally, you got that kind of web looking interface. So it doesn't, you know, you don't have to pull up a, a dedicated editor that you have to install and things like that. So. Yeah, I think it probably is a good, you know, and it, it deals with data and, and most people in some area have to deal with manipulating data. And, and once in Excel, yeah, you can start getting large files or having to do any kind of uh, manipulation of sorting or any kind of complex thing in Excel. And it starts taking like two minutes to do that. And you sit in there with the spinner and you're like, <laughs> OK, I got to find something, something else. It's got to be a better way. I think on the flip side, too, though, I mean, a lot of people can use Jupyter as kind of a crutch and build some really big systems that really should be put into proper packages and things. So it's kind of hard to know once you've made the transition from exploratory data analysis into something that should be you know, more software engineered. That's a really good point. I'm probably guilty of that myself. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's probably cases where I should just be putting them into a, into a script that and not running it in, in the Jupyter notebook itself. But yeah, time, it's hard to know, though. It just sort of creeps yeah. up on you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's really interesting that there's that you could take it too far, right? Like, eventually, you might want to break out of it. To me, doing traditionally, like, web development and database stuff and so on, that's usually across lots of files. And, and it's, it's like a different way of programming than people do with exploratory data. And it took me for a little while to get my head around, like, what is the real value? And like, why do people love Jupyter and these notebooks so much? But when I saw people really doing the exploratory data stuff with them, I'm like, oh, this really is pretty amazing for what, for that type of, of work. I agree. I didn't get Jupyter. I, you know, I kept hearing people talking about it and it was really only about, probably about a year and a half ago that. I saw someone demonstrate it and then it clicked. I'm like, oh, that makes a lot of sense now. And it really has changed, you know, the way I can do a data analysis. I, I hardly ever open Excel anymore. I 
I kind of hate it now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to be pretty good with pandas for that, but that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's. I mean, for sure. I mean, panda, but it. I'll echo. You know, you get with large files. You know, Excel just kind of starts crashing if you get if you're trying to do a lot of, especially if you throw you know multiple view lookups in you know or on a really large data set. But pandas, unless you're dealing with gigabytes. Yeah of data it, it is really really fast yeah that's awesome all right so i, I want to sort of do a little uh, a little bit of forward looking stuff with you guys here maybe by starting looking backwards so i i guess if if you have people who are coming into your industry and they don't have any programming background what advice would you give them uh, let's start with you derek okay well i think the first one a lot of people that i've told about programming coming from my background have have said things like well i haven't had a class in that or i don't know about that because no one is i just don't have any experience with it and so i think getting over this mental block that you have to have taken a university or a high school course on something in order to learn it is is a real barrier for some people so the first one would be uh, just understand that you don't have to be taught everything formally and the second one would be to, to be a little bit humble and try to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And what I mean by that is when you try something new, especially when there's other people around you that are really good at it, you're kind of putting yourself in a position of inferiority, right? It can be kind of intimidating. Maybe it's not the best feeling. But if you can really just kind of take it step by step and learn what you can in those situations, I think you can really grow uh, professionally and as a person as well. Yeah, that's great advice, especially in today's age, you know, like if you could either take a semester long course and disrupt your life Monday, Wednesday, Friday for two hours plus homework and exams, or you could take a weekend and an online course and get pretty close, honestly, you know, even free stuff on YouTube, you may be able to sort of teach yourself. So it's, it's definitely a different perspective. I think that people right, probably right. got to wipe their minds around. Yeah, cool. I think, too, if you have a specific problem that you're trying to solve, that really is, is a good way to learn. You just learn enough to solve a problem, and then you get a harder problem, and you kind of build your knowledge of programming as you solve the problems you have to address anyway. Yeah, because you can't learn it all at once. It just becomes right. overwhelming. All right, so if you can focus it to, like, I need to do these three things. How do I do those three things? And it becomes way easier. I'll echo that, you know, the statement about solving a specific problem, because that, that was my advice, too. I set out to learn programming just because, and but I didn't I didn't have a problem to solve at first. It, but then once I didn't, and I didn't really make a lot of progress until I did have a problem to solve. You know, once I was doing that accounting job and said, "Oh, I can automate this step," and that's where I made progress because I was figuring out how to do a specific task. And then I'm just like he said, you move on from there and solve bigger problems and take it step by step. Don't feel like you have to learn everything all at once because you're you're not going to. And, and it takes time to for things to come automatically. I mean, there's things that I do now in Python that, you know, just come naturally. But a year or two years ago, they, I, I would have had to look it up on Stack Overflow again, you know, for the hundredth time. It's hard to realize that things like that will become automatic and you sort of go on autopilot, like driving a car. Yeah. Or so it's like so there's so many inputs and things and stuff you got to juggle, but eventually most of it becomes sort of just stuff you do automatically. Yeah, even pandas. I mean, I've only been using pandas for just over a year, but because I've been using it every day for about almost a year, it is natural now, you know. And and I know, you know, the documentation's there. I know how to figure out how to do something, even if I don't know how to do it off the top of my head. Yeah, that's excellent. Jim, what's your advice? So I would say for anyone who's working with ArcGIS, I would start by just 
looking at what your daily workflow is, whatever you're doing day to day, go look at ARC's help docs because they've got, for every function that you can use, they've got a Python example of how you do it with Python. And it's not just like the one line of how to use the function. It's like a short little script of beginning to end how you would use this. And then look at your workflow, start grabbing all those like pieces of scripts, customize it to whatever you need. And then all of a sudden you've replaced an entire workflow with a Python script that's your own work. And after you've done that, learn a little bit more about just like generic Python. And then even though this isn't necessarily Python related, I would highly recommend learning PostGIS and SQL because there's a lot of things that you can do in PostGIS that just yeah. aren't readily easable, easy to do in, in ArcGIS. Right. Have a little bit of database knowledge, possibly. Yeah, great. Arash? I should probably have a lot, lot to say on this on this topic, but I'll try to keep it uh, to some main points. I think it's a combination of, I think one of the two main points is a combination of learning and doing. And I think you got to balance it in the sense that some people might realize anything until and some people might just rush in and just and just do stuff but not really even pick up a book and learn some fundamentals i think you got to kind of do both you got to pick up the book and learn the fundamentals but most of the time you won't truly understand all of it until you actually start to doing some stuff so you got to kind of do that back and forth and, and a lot of times decide to build the application flask while you're reading your python book and then after you finish the flask you probably want to go back and read that python because actually then a lot of the things in there will start to click better for you after you've had the experience. And so you got to kind of go back and forth. Almost an iterative learning style, right? Yeah, it's like, yeah, because I, I know I know a lot of times the, the stuff I read, I thought I understood it, or maybe I, you think you understand it, but you don't really understand it until you actually are somewhere stuck and you're trying to do something. You're like, oh, you know, then you refer to it, and then you're like, oh, now I understand what they were talking about in that book. <laughs> and so going back and rereading you know, some of the stuff that you try. So try to learn the fundamentals, but don't let that from stop you trying to build stuff. Because as I said, as everyone said here, especially if you have a specific problem or just decide on some project and just start working on it and then try to read and work sort of concurrently as best as you can. Uh, and I think that that's, uh, will set you on a good path to try to try to learn. Yeah, that's great. So the last one, I guess, is, you know, think about the industry that you came from originally. Where do you see programming and things like artificial intelligence and just people having these programming skills increasingly over time, pushing the industry and changing the way that people do their jobs there? Uh, Derek, let's just start with you. Okay. I've seen a lot of hype around artificial intelligence and machine learning, and there's some bigger companies that are doing some things that are pretty significant with it. But I think there has to be a lot of footwork you know, on the ground level. Maybe the average engineer is going to have to gain some more data literacy before you can get data into a format or a sensible database in order to be able to do these bigger analyses on them that really can add value. And so I see a lot of uh, emphasis on data literacy, maybe simple scripting being becoming part of the curriculum for a lot of engineering disciplines. And then I'd also like to see a lot more open source being used. A lot of companies will pay a lot of money for, I would even say, subpar proprietary packages that a lot of open source libraries can do for free if you just knew that they existed and knew how to install them. Yeah, that's a really good point about the open source stuff. And I think open source is definitely going to drive a lot of change for a lot of areas. Jim? In the GIS realm, one of the things that we have always had to deal with is the fact that we almost always have more data than we can actually handle. 
and because like the whole world is our subject <laughs> and so a lot of times we'll scale our data back to a, a lower resolution so that we can just just even begin to do the processing so as new things come out that lets us work with bigger and bigger data sets we already have those data sets available we've got petabytes of satellite imagery that just for the most part goes relatively unprocessed just because there's nothing that can process that much data all that easily. Yeah, and as the processing power gets better and people are more capable to uh, take advantage of it, you know, larger problems will be solved, right? Yep. Yeah, very cool. Arash? Yeah, actually, you know, even though I'm not in organic chemistry anymore, I still read a few articles here and there about what's going on. And actually one that I saw, which I, I was not surprised that things were in this direction, was that MIT, uh, someone at some, uh, a group at MIT had come up with an artificial intelligence that was significantly better at predicting medicinal chemistry compounds for clinical trial type of stuff. So basically, you know, medicinal chemists, if people don't know chemistry, are the people who sort of investigate the type of compounds that eventually will become drugs. And that's a very slow, costly process of iteratively making compounds, thousands of compounds to even see. Whereas eventually, there is definitely a solution here for software to really step in and make that process faster and cheaper. And and this MIT team came up with this article about it being vastly improved as far as being um, uh, predicting better compounds. And I see that's really where the direction is going. And there's already lots of robotic automation happening in organic chemistry when I was there. And I'm sure that's expanded. So along with artificial intelligence, you kind of see where now computers can fairly accurately design drugs for diseases and push it through the pipeline, which you know hopefully should reduce, we would hope, to reduce the cost of drugs and be able to discover drugs faster. I mean, that's ultimately the goal. Right now, the process takes anywhere from 10 to 20 years. I mean, if we could discover a drug for a disease in two years, that would be a lot better. So, yeah, that would be great. Maybe maybe even lower the price of... <laughs> maybe. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> Just raise the profits, probably. But st- I, one thing I'm really surprised about is how much programming and automation are affecting medicine, actually, because that seems like a really human, hands-on sort of thing but we've got you know ai doing the job of radiologists in uh, cancer detection for uh, google did a thing on studying readmissions and like finding out that people are going to have to come back to the hospital sooner i believe this example like it's really interesting how these sort of good doctor medical jobs are almost under threat from software. Yeah, I think it's a case where the, a lot of this feels like, if we talk about medicinal chemists, I mean, the, the lore was you had the old medicinal chemist guy who, you know, had been making compounds for, you know, 20 years, and he just knew which one was going to be the right compound, right? So that, that had been an, basically an operation for a very long time just because there really wasn't an alternative. There wasn't the data, be able to crunch data, analyze it, and do the type of things predictably that we do now, that we are starting to be able to do now, just wasn't available. So you kind of had to rely on this sort of people who had just experience uh, in the field and just sort of their experience guiding it. But now I think we have more data, we can analyze it, we can predict it, and that's gonna start to replace those, unfortunately, in some level, replace those old guys with the feel of, yeah, I know this is gonna be the right thing, or that's gonna be you know, the right way to do it. And it's like, no, the data is gonna drive us now. <laughs> that's really interesting. Rob, how about you? Yes, I, I'm not sure from an accounting standpoint, since I'm not in the industry anymore, but I would imagine there are companies already working on you know, the AI machine learning side of things to automate 
the more manual sides of, of doing accounting and bookkeeping and things like that. And probably tax wise too, I would imagine. I think it's what H&R Block already advertises how they use IBM Watson for calculating your taxes or something like that. Oh, I, interesting. I'm not sure details. Yeah. So I'm sure, you know, down the road, there's going to be a point where, you know, you click two buttons and all your tax data is imported and your return is filed automatically without having to do much of anything. But we're probably still a little ways off. Yeah. So kind of folks could become almost like advisors more than like uh, computers, I guess. Yeah. I think it kind of goes back to what some of the other guys were talking about where, you know, oh, you're going to take away my job. Well, no, not really. You're just going to work on higher level you know, planning type of things versus the actual manual work of, of uh, calculating taxes or doing bookkeeping. Yeah, and that sounds like a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I think we have to leave it there. We're pretty much out of time, everyone. But I uh, wouldn't be Talk Python without the final two questions. So we'll just quickly, I'll, I'll go down the list. You guys can uh, let me know. So Derek, favorite editor and notable PyPI package? I don't really have a favorite editor. I'll use Vim or Spider or PyCharm, just depending on what I'm doing. A uh, notable package, I, I found this uh, package called Sorted Containers, which basically I had run into uh, some software that had used this custom AVL implementation, and I was able to basically get rid of a lot of the compiled C code using this package. So check that out if you're in the need of something like that. Oh, that's sweet. Jim? So I spend most of my time using PyCharm if I can, and my notable package would be Hopper, which is a great development package where if you've got like a web server running and Anytime you make a change to your code, you want it to automatically restart. Hopper takes care of that for you. Yeah, that's really cool because normally you've got to like restart the process for it to redetect and reload the Python modules. But I think Flask does this automatically. All right, you can say um, like dash dash debug or, or reload or something, and it'll it'll watch those changes. And maybe it's even using Hopper inside. That that's cool. Definitely a nice feature. Arash? I used to be a PyCharm person, but I have switched to VS Code. I'm really loving VS Code, so I think I'm pretty set on moving, sticking with it. And then for a package, I'll reword it Airflow. Uh, I think it's still fairly new. Uh, I don't know how many people are using it, but if you have data pipeline workflows and you need to do some data processing and you want to do some scheduling, check out Airflow. It's a really good package and it can solve uh, uh, a lot of the pro- those kind of problems. Nice. It sounds like you guys are doing cool stuff with it. Yeah. Rob? Uh, favorite editor, I, um, if I'm doing, I mean, a lot of my work is, uh, you know, Jupyter now, but uh, if I'm doing just stuff locally, fun, it's uh, Sublime generally or occasionally Vim. Okay, great. And package? Yeah, package, a little one called Piperclip, which is really simple. It can, uh, you just give it a path or anything, and it will copy something to your clipboard, which is really handy when people send you files that you have to load into Pandas and the name is never consistent. So we literally <laughs> just copy the <laughs> the file name and have the path set up and you concatenate together and you're all set to go. So Oh, that's cool. I really like Piperclip. Yeah. I, I use it for some automation as well. And just like the results will pop out. And I don't want to save them to a file, but I just, I need to paste them somewhere else. And so the last yep. bit in that step is just copy to clipboard. And, you know, if I want it, it's, it's there. If not, like, you know, I just, I just ignore what's in my clipboard. Yeah, I just, I usually just use it to grab something and put it in my clipboard and grab it from there without having to paste it. So yeah, great. Very nice. Yep. Very nice. Good recommendation. All right, everyone, thank you for being on the show. This was a really interesting conversation and I'm looking forward to sharing with everyone. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. You bet. Bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. 
Our guests on this episode have been Derek Chambers, Jim Taysom, Arash Shoheli, and Rob Ward. It's been brought to you by Linode and Brilliant.org. Linode is bulletproof hosting for whatever you're building with Python. Get four months free at talkpython.fm slash Linode. That's L-I-N-O-D-E. Brilliant.org wants to help you level up your math and science through fun, guided problem solving. Get started for free at talkpython.fm slash Brilliant. Want to level up your Python? If you're just getting started, try my Python Jumpstart by Building 10 Apps or our brand new 100 Days of Code in Python. And if you're interested in more than one course, be sure to check out the Everything Bundle. It's like a subscription that never expires. Be sure to subscribe to the show. Open your favorite podcatcher and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, Google Play feed at slash play, and direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code.